This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host Jeremy Kaur. Today we will be talking to Dr. Josh Luke. He is here to talk about his book Health Wealth: 9 Steps to Financial Recovery. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um First of all, thanks again for having me on the show. So I was a uh, hospital CEO for about 10 years, but what's interesting about that uh, journey is uh, when I was in high school, actually, I had two older brothers who were professional athletes. And I remember sitting on the bench uh, watching my teammates play basketball my senior year in high school thinking, you know, uh, maybe God didn't bless me the same way he blessed my brothers to be a pro athlete. Maybe I should set my sights elsewhere. And so I actually set the goal of being in sports marketing. And so when I went to college and graduated and then graduate school, I found myself working uh, within all four uh, major professional sports leagues as an intern or doing projects for them within a year or two of getting out of graduate school. And I was really loving doing that. But then when I was 28 uh, years old, I got married. And uh, excuse me, 26 years old, I got married and really quickly overnight, I, my priorities changed. And about the same time, my grandmother was sick and she was going back and forth between nursing homes and hospitals and assisted livings. And and I made a career change to healthcare. I, I trained to be a nursing home administrator. And uh, within a few years of doing that, I got recruited to come uh, run a small aging hospital in Southern California, where I'm from. And next thing I knew, I was a hospital CEO. My first job in a hospital ever at this small little hospital was as a CEO. So I learned on the job for four years. I got recruited about after four years to go to another hospital and did that for three more years. And then about that time, the Affordable Care Act passed or Obamacare. It's the same thing. Some people call it one, some call it the other. And uh, because I was such a young CEO and saw things from such a different perspective, really questioned everything along the way from this journey to sports marketing dude, to nursing home administrator, (laughs) to hospital CEO, I was still asking a lot of questions and not getting answers. So when they completely changed the game with the Affordable Care Act, I started to speak out and present more on stage and started to write. And I got asked to write a book about Obamacare, specifically about uh, the hospital readmission penalty, which was new and not not many folks knew anything about it. So I researched it and wrote about it. And that really gave me a platform to become a full-time public speaker and author. And now I have three books and two of them are bestsellers, the number one uh, number one bestsellers on Amazon. The most recent one, as you mentioned, uh, from Forbes is called Health Wealth. Is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business? Nine Steps to Financial Recovery came out in January 2018. It's been a lot of fun. So So you've been dubbed a healthcare futurist. What exactly is a futurist? 
Uh, that's a great question. You know, somewhere along the way here back in 2014 and 15, when I was kind of transitioning out of the hospital C-suite, I was the vice president for a health system here in Southern California, and I was getting a lot of requests to go speak. So I was really kind of had my foot uh, halfway out the door. And as people would introduce me at different uh, venues throughout the country, two or three times in 2014, people took it upon themselves to say, hey, Dr. Luke is, is a futurist. He's really good at, at studying the policy and telling us how it's going to impact us, both as hospital executives, post-acute executives, but also family members and professionals. What does the Affordable Care Act not just say, but what's the impact going to be? Because Dr. Luke uh, has a background, a professional background that's diverse. And, you know, I always joke when I speak that, uh, you know, I couldn't keep a job for very long because when you look at my history, I worked about every two or three years. I just jumped from one job to the other. And at the time, I thought I was, you know, progressing and getting promoted. And I guess I was. But it's also because I just I, I'm a I ask a lot of questions. I, I, I seek answers. I speak my mind. And so it's been a fun journey. But the reason I was a futurist and really focused on the policies was because I'd done so many different things in healthcare by the time I started writing that few people had that much diverse experience. So it's been cool to be able to speak to all sides of it and say, hey, I've been there. Uh, I was an administrator in nursing homes. I oversaw assisted living. I ran a hospice and home health. I uh, you know, was a hospital CEO. I was a health system vice president. I ran an acute rehab. So I really have been over almost every level of care across the continuum. What inspired you to write Health Wealth? Great question. So in 2016, I released a book called X-Acute, X-Acute, a former hospital CEO tells all on what's wrong with American healthcare. That same year, uh, LinkedIn approached me about writing for their healthcare pulse. And so my, my LinkedIn following was growing. Um, my book became a bestseller on Amazon, my, my public speaking, I became a full-time public speaker. And somewhere towards the end of um, uh, 2016, I got contacted by Forbes. And Forbes said, hey, we're looking for somebody to come to write a book for American businesses, teaching them how to reduce their spending, significantly reduce their spending on healthcare uh, as a benefit for their employees. And they said, we found you on LinkedIn. We're interviewing six or seven people. We'd love for you to come back east and, and meet with us and just tell us your thoughts. So in March of that year, I went back east and I met with the, the folks from Forbes and said, you know, why me? Explain to me what your goal is here. And they said, hey, you know, uh, Forbes, obviously strong brand and business. Uh, we're looking for provocative authority marketers like yourself that are very outspoken and truth tellers. And we found you on LinkedIn and we, we've seen four or five others. And I knew I knew who those other guys were, but what, as it turns out, they brought me back for a second interview and said, hey, we, we think you need to write this book. You're the one we're picking, and here's why. Because you're pulling back the curtain on on healthcare providers. There's been no transparency with hospitals and insurers and big pharma through the years. And the other people we interviewed have a lot of answers on how to save money for American businesses, but they're all brokers or benefits advisors. And so uh, their credibility isn't what yours is as a former CEO who's willing to pull the curtain back and tell the truth. So when Forbes asked me to write this book, I really had to sleep on it for a few nights because I really wasn't planning on writing another book in the near future. And more importantly, they were asking me to reach outside of my comfort zone and write a book about something I wasn't necessarily an expert in. It was more of kind of a parallel 
field. And so I had to do some research, but I woke up kind of the second morning after I got back and they said, Hey, we'd like you to write this book. And my wife uh, said, what's up? And I said, Hey, I just don't think I want to write another book. I haven't been planning on it. And I'm a little nervous because this is outside of my sweet spot. And my wife said, Hey, don't you remember when, when you lost your job as a hospital CEO after seven years and you came to me and said, Hey, we've been good stewards of our finances. We've been blessed for all these years. We have quite a, a nest egg of savings, but I just can't justify paying $1,400 to $2,500 a month for insurance when I'm unemployed for health insurance for my family. We had three kids in middle school at the time, and I, I convinced my wife that we we shouldn't be paying for health insurance. And that's a slippery slope when you got three young kids and a, and a beautiful young wife at home. And so um, she went with it, and for six months we were uninsured. And she said to me that morning, she said, hey, um, if we can't afford health care, you being a CEO and us being good stewards of our finances, who in this country can afford health care? And that really resonated with me that, hey, I've lived this this um, this challenge, this uh, ruining of the American dream. And it's really a universal issue. Just the name of the book itself is a slam dunk. Is healthcare bankrupting your business? Yes, every business would say it's our second or third largest expense and the only one we really can't control at all. So it's been a fun ride. I appreciate that Forbes has put some muscle behind it and marketed it. It went to bestseller on day one in January. We did a big international media tour and it's been a lot of fun. Can you talk a bit about the experience uh, you reference in the preface of the book uh, from your time as a new hospital CEO uh, and what you took away from it? Yeah, so um, a lot of questions for sure about how we got here, why things are the way they are, why is it that we don't provide our prices to people even when they ask, uh, how do we not really exactly know what our prices are. Uh, and I learned a lot more about what the um, reimbursement model prior to Obamacare was, which was called fee-for-service. And there's still a lot of fee-for-service principles in place right now. But for your listeners who aren't well-versed in it, I'll make it really simple. Fee-for-service means if you call your doctor and say, hey, I have a stomachache, can you help out? He or she doesn't get paid for helping you unless you come to their office and they actually see you and document it. And hospitals are no different. Um, hospitals get paid when they put a head in a bed. So they get a little money for seeing you in the emergency department, but where they really uh, get their gold standard revenue is when they admit you to the hospital. So the big myth that, that is out there is when you go to the emergency department, you're there to be assessed when the reality is you're there to, you're there to be justified is the term I use. Uh, we're going to run as many tests as we can so we can find one a test where you might be in the gray area so we can justify admitting you to our hospital so we can bill the insurer the federal government. And what the beautiful thing was during the fee-for-service era is there were very, very few checks and balances. There was very little recourse for the federal government or the insurers to say, hey, come on, that patient didn't need to be admitted to the hospital. And the louder the doctors and hospitals got and the more lawyers they threw at the problem, the more insurers and the federal government backed down. And so we were getting paid. It was a great time. It was the golden era of, of hospital reimbursement. So over time in the 90s and after the millennium, what happened is – uh, the federal government uh, said, hey, we're running out of money in the Medicare fund. We've got to put a system in place where there's some, uh, just a little bit of accountability, if not a lot. And I always joke with people when I'm public speaking, because I'm a full-time public speaker. You can learn more about that at drjoshluke.com. But when I, when I open up my presentation, 
I say, hey, do you remember when you're in college or at the age where folks go to college, how your checking account was always empty? Well, the federal checking account for Medicare is empty, and it's running empty at a, at a, a rapid pace. Every couple of years, they they say, oh, actually, now it's down to 2035 before it gets empty. Now it's 2033, you know. And and by coincidence, that's about the time I'm going to age out into Medicare <laughs> that they're supposed to run out. Um, but but this goes to show. Let me just kind of close the answer to that question with this. Um, Jeremy, the uh, hospital industry uh, was basically dragging their feet for seven years after five, six, seven years after the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010, keeping their fingers crossed that a Republican would take the White House and a Republican majority in Congress would help them undo the Affordable Care Act and return to a model with no accountability. And even if they missed the mark a little bit, how about just less accountability than the Affordable Care Act that had all these penalties if you don't transition to a model where you're keeping people healthy and at home? So literally the hospitals didn't do anything for five or six years because they've, they've always been able to drag their feet. They have one of the biggest lobbies in the country. If not the biggest, they're in the top three. They throw money at their congressmen. They get what they want and they don't have to do anything they don't want. That's always been the history. So, you know, rewind back to 2016, Trump takes the White House GOP majority and literally overnight people are high-fiving in the hospital industry, but that lasted about 48 hours before people realize, oh, we got what we want, but that checking account's still empty. Mm -hmm. There's no way to go back to a system with no checks and balances. And the evidence of that is President Trump's first appointee for uh, director of health and human services was a physician, a physician who was very open, Dr. Tom Price, about the fact that he did not support the Affordable Care Act and wanted to undo it. He was in that role for, I think, six to eight months. And with every fiber in his body, he wanted to undo it. And he simply couldn't, nor could Congress. Uh, and there's two reasons that I, I uh, um, basically identify with to say why that wouldn't happen. Number one, I've already covered a couple of times. The checking account's empty. You can't go back to a system with no checks and balances uh, because doctors, hospitals, nursing homes, big pharma have all shown um, that we're just going to build the system, mm-hmm. number one. Number two, uh, I firmly believe, and I learned this as a young executive, which get back, gets back to the root of this uh, question, what did you learn as a 32-year-old hospital CEO? One of those early lessons was this. You cannot, in this country, in America, you cannot giveth and then taketh away. And what I mean by that is you can't give somebody a raise one year and then next year go back and say, oh, man, we had a rough year. I got to take some money away. It's very difficult to do that, which is why oftentimes in corporate America, we opt to just give you a bonus this year because we're not sure if next year is going to be great. And that way it doesn't become an expectation. And I believe that it's those two reasons that even a Republican majority was unable to undo what they uh, you know, would be eminently stated that they would undo as soon as they were elected during the election, which was undo the Affordable Care Act, A, because there's no money in the Medicare fund to, to go back to a system with no checks and balances, and B, because Americans have now felt entitled to have, you know, there's a big debate, I guess entitled may not be the right word, but is health care a right or is mm-hmm. it a privilege? And that's really what transitioned. And I wrote an interesting article on LinkedIn that basically said before Obamacare, 
uh, regardless of your political affiliation, most Americans would have shrugged their shoulders and said, yeah, I don't know that health care is a right, you know, in mm-hmm. this country. Uh, fast forward six or seven years, it's now been offered as something that everyone can have. And it's uh, you're going to see whether people are conservative Republicans or not, uh, or, or even on the other side, everybody's kind of going, well, yeah, we should have health care because they've been conditioned for six or seven years that this is something that's there for them. And it's hard to take that away. Where do you feel the right kind of payment methodology should be like more value based care then? Or how would how would you want that to be? Well, I'm certainly not a fan of fee for service because there's no accountability. And that's mm-hmm. not to, you know, I, I just, you know, 90% of the doctors listening just, you know, rolled their eyes and said, I, I don't like this Dr. Luke anymore <laughs> because they grew so used to uh, billing, 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 testing, testing, testing. Nobody can tell me no because I'm the doctor. And what the feds finally did is say, pat them on the back and say, hey, thanks for going to med school. I'm sure you're great, but we don't trust doctors anymore. So we're not going to pay you for doing whatever you want. Uh, we're going to go to a criteria-based methodology, both for doctors and hospitals. And so that's what's changed. But the answer to your question is, this is an insurance model. And the Affordable Care Act, value-based care, basically is saying hospitals, you, you used to be a gigantic industry. It was a great time. Now you're the largest expense in the model. When you transition to an insurance model, let's take the state of Maryland, okay? They were one of the first to go to kind of this set uh, payments. Here's how much money the feds and the state pour in for health care. Uh, this is how much we're going to divide up between all the providers, doctors, hospitals, nursing homes. Based on how many patients you saw last year, here's your chunk of money. Guess what that did? Overnight, it made every doctor and every hospital and nursing home and provider completely turned their business model upside down and said every ounce of effort we put out, every penny we spend is simply an expense, right? Whereas mm-hmm. the prior model was we get paid by overutilizing and running more tests and spending more time and doing more things. Overnight, they went to a value-based model where they said, here's your chunk of money for the year. Provide the same care you did last year. And if you provide less, you get to keep the savings, and if you provide more, well, you're paying for it out of your own pocket. Well, that's an insurance model. Watch how fast the providers in Maryland learned how to do this. It was overnight, mm-hmm. right? The rest of the country's eight years in going, gosh, we're just not sure if we know how to do this insurance model thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it was such a good time. These hospitals are going to go out of business. Uh, too bad, so sad for us. You know, what's going to happen? And I, I always uh, find it humorous that you see these, hey, uh, community the hospitals doing a fundraising campaign for a new building aren't we awesome this is what we used to do during the baby boomer era we appeal to our community to build a new building so we can take care of you small side note when you come to our emergency room uh, you can't afford to pay your copay oh but we're back to ask you for an emotional appeal to donate money for a new building so when you come you can't afford it, it I, I find so much irony in that that i think that uh, you know i know We're going to talk here in a minute about millennial culture and how it's really Mm -hmm. turned to American culture. But I think as millennials, they probably see that and go, why the heck would Mm -hmm. I donate any money to that shiny building that the only time I went to in my entire life, I got an $8,000 bill and I was only there for two hours. You know, us Gen Xers like me were caught somewhere in the middle where we lived both of it, both sides of it, where it used to be you know, part of the deal for a not-for-profit not for profit hospital to appeal to the community for fundraising. But now the millennials are kind of going, wait a minute, I can't even afford to have insurance to go there. Why would I ever donate money to it? So I kind of get a kick out of when I see those uh, fundraising uh, efforts coming on board. 
you know, I, I'm fascinated. I'm a Gen Xer, proud Gen Xer. I, you know, I joke that, uh, you know, I used to feel picked on for riding a BMX bike and drinking Diet Coke and uh, watching <laughs> MTV. And you look back and go, gosh, none of those things were really that bad. And now the millennials feel picked on. But what I realized about two years ago is uh, as I was traveling the country, I, I was hearing for several years, uh, oh, my grandmother will never use an iPad to improve her care. My my mom won't uh, use technology to uh, better self-manage her care. Well, in, in 2016, that changed. You started, you stopped hearing that because basically uh, the technology got too good. And what mm -hmm. I realized as I traveled the country is that that was the year that uh, millennial culture became American culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, this year, 2018, is the year that millennials became the largest generation in the American workforce. And so when I speak, I talk a lot about uh, how us as, as Gen Xers and boomers, if we're not understanding how millennials interpret communication, then shame on us and that's on us. And uh, it's very important that you do that. And if you haven't ever watched uh, a YouTube video by Simon Sinek, S-I-N-E-K, mm -hmm. about how millennials interpret communication, I would encourage all of your listeners to uh, just go onto YouTube and, and or just Google Simon Sinek. Uh, millennial communication and it'll come up it's a 14 or 15 minute video and it will change your life it did it changed my life i watched it twice i laughed i cried I asked my wife to watch it my kids came home from school a few months later for their freshman and high school careers class and were told they had to watch it uh, as part of their final and to write a little essay on what they learned but it really teaches you how millennials interpret your communication um, and uh, it's really helpful for you both as a professional but also as a uh, as a father uh, as a uh, grandparent, whatever it might be, to understand uh, that you need to unlearn. I'm actually doing a lot of thinking now about writing some columns about unlearning what we learned growing up because you can't even twist, turn, or adjust how a, a, a Gen X or, or specifically a boomer grew up and even compare it to how a teenage Gen Zer is growing up right now where my kids are afraid to go talk to their high school teachers because they have so little experience in true face-to-face -face interaction social experiences. My son's going to a job interview going, what do I do? What do I say? What are they going to ask me? You know, these are things that, that we didn't necessarily have to be taught when we were teenagers as uh, Gen Xers and Boomers. So, so to even compare it, uh, probably isn't healthy just to go study how they interpret communication and then start figuring out how you can communicate uh, is very important. And I see that this is really critical in healthcare, which is why I kind of combine it with my healthcare message. So while we're on the topic of millennials in more in terms of more than just communication and technology. Uh, let's talk a bit about how things like convenience, uh, healthy lifestyle and things like that of the millennial culture will impact the future of healthcare in America. Yeah, so great question. Actually, this week there was a New York Times article that basically said corporate wellness isn't working. And, it, and I, I know that the evidence is there that corporate wellness programs haven't moved the needle on saving corporations money yet. So I get a little bit frustrated when the headline is so strong, hey, it doesn't work because it's brand new and we're forcing it on people. And um, so where I look at wellness and healthy lifestyles is – uh, in my book, Health Wealth is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business, Nine Steps to Financial Recovery, um, of those nine steps there, they pretty much all come down to 
either personalized medicine or preventative medicine. And uh, the ninth step, and I purposely put it last because I thought it really brought together some of the others, is called uh, integrative or functional medicine. Or a lot of people refer to it as naturopathic medicine. And some people traditionally called it Eastern medicine. Um, part of the reason they don't call it Eastern medicine anymore is because Big Pharma in the 60s and 70s made sure that we all knew that if you were sick, you needed a pill, period. And when I read that and researched it a couple of years ago when I was researching for health wealth, uh, I said, oh gosh, that's me. I was born in 1972 and my whole life as a Gen Xer, I've been brainwashed to believe that uh, I, I need to pick my pill when I'm sick and that's the only way to get better. And uh, what I learned is up until the 60s, there were more than 120 college and university programs in the United States on natural medicine, on uh, Eastern medicine, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. But Big Pharma made made sure that went away. And so in recent years, we've seen it start to come back. And it kind of started its reemergence with chronic disease, with people who are end of life, who are just reaching for um, you know, something to hold on to that hopefully they could extend their life a little longer. But in, in some cases, there were victories where we learned, hey, maybe uh, understanding your body better and understanding your blood type, understanding your DNA, understanding what uh, medications your body metabolizes through DNA tests is helpful. Maybe nutrigenetics, understanding which foods your body considers fuels versus blockers is helpful. Uh, understanding as much as you can about your genetic makeup, about how your body reacts to things. Um, so when we talk about wellness and healthy lifestyles, it's not so much putting on a Fitbit and, mm -hmm. you know, if you walk so many steps, you get an award from somebody. It's a little bit of all that. But the Fitbit, actually, the, the research on the Fitbits has been interesting that actually a lot of times it works against people because they they uh, set a bar so low for themselves on steps that if they they initially set the bar so low that if they reach that amount of steps, they think they're doing great. Uh, but it becomes kind of an artificial confidence. So they're not eating as healthy. Um, they're not exercising as much as they might be. So I just like to say, hey, the New York Times is right that if you measure um, corporate wellness programs to date, there hasn't been a huge return on investment in terms of saving money on uh, combining your wellness spend with your healthcare spend. But I do believe that there's enough evidence surrounding that with naturopathic medicine or functional medicine, along with DNA testing uh, and other things that we talk about in health, wealth in our nine steps, that when you surround those uh, with a corporate wellness program that you don't force on people, but you allow them to choose it, you're going to see significant savings. Let's let's kind of back up a bit. And can you talk a bit about what you call the, the culture of greed? Yeah. So um, the people at Forbes, even though I'd written two books, uh, and one of them was a, a bestseller, I, I really didn't know how to write a book. I went to journalism school. I'd done a lot of writing. Uh, I knew how to write articles. I'd won some awards for writing articles and stuff like that. But they really said, hey, here's how you write a book. Mm -hmm. You know, you open the, the chapter with a short story that exemplifies what you're going to talk about. Then you explain what you want to explain. And then tell me a longer story that really drives it home. And so when we started um, kind of uh, outlining out uh, health wealth, I said, hey, uh, the first there's three parts. The first part is is going to be called a system broken beyond repair. Just describing all the things we've been talking about, Jeremy, for the mm -hmm. last half hour about the fee for service model and how it was just there was no accountability. There was no checks and balances. If a doctor said you're sick and billed for you, he or she got paid. If the hospital said admit them, they got paid and nobody could question it. In fact, what other industry in America, if you went and asked for prices in advance, would they say, well, 
We don't have those. And, and the 20% of the time the hospital did give you the prices, they'd say, oh, but, but just so you know, these are just guesses because it's up to the doctor and nurse what they actually do to you when you're in the operating room or getting the test that counts. So so we'll bill you. And even if you disagree with it, there's no real recourse. So so this this model of no accountability mm-hmm. uh, in, in healthcare was really what I wanted to get the point across. And therefore, I kind of dubbed it a system broken beyond repair. Once I described that in the first chapter, um, the folks at Forbes came back and they said, hey, chapter two, you wrote about all the people that are problems. They're really the villains of greed. And I said, oh, man, that's <laughs> awesome. They're villains of greed. It's all of a sudden it's like a you know a Marvel comic or something. But the more they said that, I realized, hey, these guys are outsiders. They're just editors. They're not healthcare people. They read this and said, these people are really screwing me, you know, <laughs> and, and and one by one they were. And even since this book came out, Health Wealth, it's uh, 60 Minutes did a a, uh, a show uh, earlier in 2018 where they talked about the pharmacy benefit manager who is also one of these middlemen who really could be thrown in there as a as a villain of greed because they were they were created to help companies spend less on uh, pharmaceuticals several years ago but over time the big pharma got their claws in them and said hey how about if we rebate you personally the more money your clients spend and if you steer them towards our high price meds instead of the generics we'll pay you more and so all of a sudden somebody that you hired as your advocate is actually getting money under the table so to speak from others so these villains of greed really start with um the hospital the hospital that's never been willing to share prices or be transparent and then it goes to the insurer uh the big insurers that raise their rates every year then we talk about big pharma we talk about all these middlemen whether it's device companies pharmacy benefit managers all of these people third-party administrators that are doing these jobs that really um are questionable to start with, but it just became a system broken beyond repair where everybody had to get their hand in the pot. And so let me let me throw this at you, Jeremy, because I think you're in you're in the heartland, right? You're in mm-hmm. Iowa. Is yep, that right? Iowa. Yep. So so I always liken. In fact, I think Iowa is the, is the state I choose to say. Imagine you're in Iowa and you have an unemployment issue in your city. You have um, you know a hospital that is the largest employer. And then all the other employers have, you know, one of the we call it the bukas in the industry. They they contract with your Blue Cross, mm-hmm. United, uh, Cigna, Aetna, or HealthNet or something else. And so the point I want to make here is in uh, you know mid-sized city Iowa, uh, what percentage of your healthcare dollar is leaving the state of Iowa? Because I would question why any of it needs to leave the state of Iowa, particularly when you have an unemployment problem. So if you were to start over and go to the hospital, which is the largest employer, and go to the other large employers and say, hey, why don't we start over and why don't we drop these guys called Buka, who are in Minnesota or in Louisville or in New York, wherever they are. So the question is, if 30 or 40 percent of your health care dollar for uh, both families and employers in the state of Iowa is going out of the state to an insurer, a pharmacy benefit manager, some other type of middleman, what if you were to get everybody in, in town together and say, hey, let's start over. Let's start our own insurance company right here mm-hmm. where every dollar we spend stays in the state. We can employ a few more people. Uh, the money goes to our hospitals instead of to third parties somewhere in between. And uh, we actually can drive costs down and improve care. And I think that's what you're starting to see. In fact, look no further than the rural hospital crisis right now. Mm-hmm. Rural mm-hmm. hospitals are going out of business and people say, what's going to happen? I said, well, they're going to go out of business. And they said, but, but what are we going to do? You need a hospital. I said, okay, there's three options. 
to keep the rural hospital open. Uh, the county is not one of them buying it because in a rural county, most counties don't have that kind of money to take on a hospital, which, by the way, is going to operate at a loss moving forward. So that leaves the state to step in and say, hey, uh, we can we can buy this hospital, own it, operate it, whatever you want to call it. Uh, that's a big uh, decision for any state. The other option is uh, the biggest employer in the county to step in, and, and now they're you know they might be going from a manufacturing company to owning a hospital uh, because they need it. And the third option is the bigger hospitals in the big city uh, make these into satellite campuses, which isn't a new concept, but by the way, it's a losing concept. So. It's going to take federal dollars to really create a, a trend of that happening where there, where you know a, a big city hospital would be incentivized and reimbursed for taking on that burden, if you will. So, so hospitals are transitioning from a very lucrative business model to becoming the largest expense in the model. Think of them as the oil to the airliner. They're now the largest expense. I'm curious, have, since you've written the book and have been speaking about this stuff, have you heard anything from these villains of greed? Has anybody reached out to you directly and, and you know, kind of challenged you on that? Uh, I would say informally after I speak, kind of half-heartedly knowing that in the room they're in the minority. But, and, but here's why, Jeremy. Things are so good, so good for those industries. They don't care that this, you know, this big dude who gets everybody fired up, who's got a Forbes book, is on stage and people are getting fired up going, yeah, man, we're getting hosed on, on healthcare, both our business and our family. We can't even afford it. They just don't care because the ripple's not big enough. The wave's not mm -hmm. big enough. But guess mm -hmm. what's happening in 2018? My book came out on January 18th of this year. Forbes put some marketing muscle behind it. It went to bestseller. And this has nothing to do with the next few things that happen. But, but I mark that date uh, because I want you to think about all the things that have happened in the six months since then. Mm-hmm. Walmart came out and said, hey, if you can't uh, beat them, buy them. And they're buying their insurer. The most efficient company in the world at reducing costs could not control their health care costs. So they just said, we'll just buy our insurer and we'll figure out how to do it ourselves. Second, J.P. Morgan, mm -hmm. Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway said, hey, we can't afford health care either. So we're just going to blow it up and start over. Disney down in Orlando uh, we can't afford health care or insurance either, so we're just going to go right to the hospital system and contract directly and, and form our own. Apple, hey, we found a better way. We're going to put clinics on our campuses. It just on down the line, right? It just keeps coming and coming. This is all in the last six months. And what I joke with people about, um, you know, you've never heard of any of those companies, have you? You know, and the joke is, you know, if those companies can't afford health care, it just reiterates my point that no companies can. And, and, and guys, the, the companies aren't even the bigger issue. American families mm -hmm. can't afford health care. And to me, that's the tragedy. You know, most recent studies show that more than 50%, closer to 80% of a millennial's lifetime income will go to health care in this country at the rate we're going right now. So while we're talking about the affordability of it on the personal level, can you talk about the experience you had when your son went to the emergency room? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. My son was playing freshman football and he woke up, you know, 10 o'clock one night said, man, I just got a stomach ache. I need to go to the emergency room. And, and uh, so we went and we sat there for a few hours, my wife and I, and he had a bunch of tests done. And about 2 a.m. they released us and we came home and they just said, gosh, I think he was just having some cramps and uh, he'll be better in the morning. And um, and so, you know, we have good insurance. We're covered by one of the bucas. It's a PPO. And you know, a few months later, I get a bill in the mail that, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's, I think it was 
seventeen hundred bucks from the anesthesiologist for whatever they did, and then uh, it was almost four thousand dollars, I think, from the hospital for everything they did. And you know, I wrote about this in my prior book, Execute, that even as a hospital CEO, I can't understand the bills that we send to you. <laughs> so what I've always done, and I, I recommend this in one of the chapters in my book, Execute, I say, hey. I just hold on to those bills for two or three months because oftentimes there's adjustments and the insurance pays and takes care of some of your portion. So I held on to those and they kept coming. And, and it turns out that, that those numbers were, in fact, what I owed. And finally, after about three or four months, the hospital started calling me and asking for me to pay. And I said, hey, I, I'd like to just talk about each line item. And, of course, they weren't prepared to do that. Um, you know, it was basically on me to challenge it. And then I said, well, you know, I'm an independent small business owner, which is true. And so um, can you offer me a discount? I said, we're not we're not allowed to offer discounts. And I said, well, sure you are. And they said, no, that actually doesn't happen until we send you to collections. And I said, well, could you just send me to collections right now? <laughs> I literally said that to them. And they're like, nobody's ever said that to me. And I said, because I know this game really well. You know, I'm not going to be threatened. I'm, and I really don't feel like I need to pay you know, more than $5,000 for an emergency room visit because my son had a stomach ache, you know. So um, I actually uh, just got a my first collection notice uh, almost uh, 21 months later from a collection company, which is probably owned by that uh, hospital system. That's mm -hmm. what most of them do. They own their own collection agency, but they put it under a different name, put it in a different state. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just sell that debt. Uh, for 20 cents on the dollar or 15 cents on the dollar and they let uh, other people try to collect but a lot of times the health system actually owns the collection agency <clears throat> and uh, I noticed on that invoice I got a few months ago that they actually offered me a discount right off the bat without me asking if I paid now I can save x percent it was still it was still like three thousand dollars or something stupid yeah, and it's 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 interesting, you know, you being an insider, you know how to game it, but you know the the, the majority of American consumers don't, and that's that's one of the big issues. But, you know, you talked about like a lot the the culture of greed, and uh, and but we also talked about the things that Apple and Walmart and you know Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway are doing, uh, J P Morgan. Uh, why do you feel, in spite of this innovation, that American healthcare is broken beyond repair? Well, Amazon's going to prove that. They can start over, and and, uh, and I just wrote a column for Forbes last week on this exact thing. They already have the infrastructure in place for both direct-to-consumer, wholesale, and retail. They've got all that in place. They've already done uh, in several different in industries what they're hoping to do in healthcare. So all the doubters are doubting just because others have tried to reinvent the wheel and it didn't work, but others weren't Amazon, which is basically the most powerful company in the country. I want to go back just really quickly. You, you hit on something that I think um, – is is important um in my prior book execute i have a, a one chapter specifically allocated to uh teaching americans how to deal with hospital and physician bills that they think are unfair and it's not outing or exposing anything inappropriate it's just saying here's how it works and it's, it's largely how i just explained it to you a minute ago but your question prior to that was hey how do these folks that you're outing uh, feel about you well one of my first reviews on Amazon, both of my books have been blessed. You know, they're, they're like four and a half to five star average on Amazon, um, the two best sellers. But one of my first reviews, first 10 reviews on Execute was from a physician who read the book. And I'm not that kind to physicians, but the reality is I'm not that kind to anybody in the book. I just out everybody and say, here's mm -hmm. what's really going on. And basically he gave me a one star and said, Dr. Luke basically teaches you how to undermine the hospital and doctor and not pay. And, and, um, you know, 
a lot of people are like, oh, you got to go in there and delete that uh, review. And I said, no, it's actually a great review. I love that. I think it makes it interesting. <laughs> There's a one star. It makes people want to go, oh, this guy's outing people. This must be good stuff. Mm-hmm. And and I, you know, every, I'm human. So I kind of go back and I read it and I say, hey, did I say something I shouldn't have in here? And I went back and said, no, um, no, I read it and there wasn't really anything in there. That, that did what he suggested, which was basically say, you know, lie to the hospital so you don't have to pay. I didn't say lie. I basically just said, you know, hey, I want to talk about these things. Uh, I, I'm a small business owner. If you are a small business owner, if you're unemployed, say you're unemployed. But just say, hey, what are my options here? Uh, but I found that that one star, which is still up, and I love it. It's still one of my favorite reviews. It makes me relevant, right? Um, <laughs> he was one of those people in the crowd saying, hey, stop it. Stop outing us. Uh, but but remember, for almost 10 years, I ran hospitals in the inner city that are there for the neediest of the needy. They're not hospitals people choose to to go by choice. If you're going to have a heart surgery, hip surgery, they're really there for um, those people that don't have choices. And so I really was passionate about serving the neediest of the needy. Largely, it was it was immigrant communities or seniors and nursing homes. And so I really saw kind of the underbelly of the healthcare delivery model. I call it the haves and the have-nots. You have these not-for-profit hospitals, which I described earlier, that they think things are so great they're actually asking you to donate money to them, even though you can't afford to go there. (laughs) And then there's the other side of the world where I ran these hospitals, which literally we were just trying to keep enough cash in the bank each day to to survive another day. So um, let's go back to that last question. Well, I think the simple answer to that is is two things. American families cannot afford health care. Basic access, access to basic health care uh, is not available to most American families, number one. And uh, number two, um, the cost of providing health care as a benefit to employees, which is now required by law, uh, is no longer affordable for American businesses as well. And it's really killing the American dream. Uh Let's let's shift gears a little bit. How and why should employers uh, create uh, what you call a health wealth culture, and and what are its biggest benefits? Well, here's the bottom line with creating a health wealth culture. So I talked about part one of the book Health Wealth from Forbes. It's Health Dash Wealth, by the way, from Forbes. And if you want to learn more about health wealth, go to health-wealth.com. And there you can see, learn about the book. We have an interactive series you can do. We have an assessment to see if your business is losing money. I have a podcast where I interview a lot of folks just like this and talk about these things. So those are all available there. But really, part one of the book is a system broken beyond repair. It really just gives you kind of a, a handful of pages about why the system's broken. Part two says, hey, um, you don't even need to read part three, which is the nine steps to financial recovery, unless you understand two things. Number one, employees, individuals have to engage in the healthcare shopping process just like they would buying a car or a house. Traditionally, that's been very difficult to get employees to do. The second thing is once you understand that becoming an EHC, an engaged healthcare consumer, is the critical point for all your employees, the second fact is you need to create a health wealth culture at your work, an environment that enables them, promotes them, encourages them to always be conscious of living a healthy lifestyle, making good choices, choosing preferred providers and centers of excellence, focusing on personalized and preventative medicine, um, 
addressing their chronic disease or their vulnerability to chronic disease. And these are all the things talked about in the nine steps. So part two of the book is becoming an EHC, an engaged healthcare consumer. That's what all your employees need to do and creating an environment for them to do that. Part three of the book is here's nine tactics, nine steps that will help uh, your company save drastically uh, and be um, a company that can save 20 or 30% annually on healthcare. Can you outline and go into a bit of depth about each of those uh, nine steps? Sure. Um, and really the order I did them in I thought made the most sense because the advice I got as I put this book together uh, was, hey, Josh, make it simple. I want turnkey ideas or I'm going to put the book down. I don't want to, oh, I have to go to my community and recreate the whole wheel in Iowa like we talked about earlier. You know, right, I just right. want to write a check to somebody and have the ROI be you know, six months, nine months, 12 months or less than 18 months. So here, let me give them to you in order right here. Okay. So the first one of the steps of the nine steps is offer alternative insurance models. And uh, what I mean by that is uh, a lot of these uh, new people, these new models are, hey, we have a 24-hour hotline where you can call a physician or nurse practitioner. We can get you a um, telehealth consult with a physician uh, within an hour pretty much at any time. And those are going to be free, but we're going to charge you if you go to a clinic. We're going to charge you if you go to the physician without trying those things first. And these are um, less expensive approaches to primary care. Um, again, what we found is when you offer those things, it's actually encouraging more utilization because when those the call line and the telehealth are connected to the uh, primary care office where they understand the goal is to push down, not to add, um, it, it can be lucrative, uh, excuse me, it can be beneficial to your organization reducing spending when people are using it to avoid the urgent care of the doctor, but it needs to be part of a bigger model. And so we call those offer uh, alternative insurance models. Uh, also in that chapter, we talk about these um, uh, collaborations or cooperatives like the, the Christian cooperatives where it's not actually insurance. They're not regulated by the Department of Insurance. But uh, there's really a, a portion of what you're doing is taking a leap of faith that there's enough people paying into this model um, that, um, that when you need reimbursement for health care, you'll get it. And you can read more about that in step one. Step two is about reducing absenteeism, which I call the million-dollar problem when your high-performing employees are missing days of work or hours of work because they have a dependent, whether a spouse, a parent, or a child who has a chronic disease or a need at home and some different ways to address that. Part three, step three, is convert to direct primary care. And I mentioned in step one, we talked about these alternative insurance models where you have a call line or you do telehealth. Um, really, those work best when you combine them with direct primary care. And, and DPC is the term, basically means if you have four or 500 employees in one location or in one city, contract with a primary care office and say, hey, uh, we're going to pay you a couple million bucks a year, but our employees and their family members can walk in anytime between 7 a.m. and 9 p.m. without an appointment. And you, you also need to make sure you're in you know, working in, in cooperation with the telehealth system we use and the, the hotline we use because the goal is to reduce people coming to your office by using those other services. Uh, and that's called direct primary care. And we're finding that doctors actually can spend quite a bit more time, like 15 to 20 minutes with each patient when they do that instead of the average, which is less than three minutes in traditional care. A lot of people say, hey, Josh, that sounds a lot like concierge medicine. 
which is kind of rich people medicine where you have to pay an annual fee to go see your doctor. It, it is, there are some similarities, but it's actually uh, not concierge medicine. It's a new concept where the corporation pays a chunk of money to the, to the primary care office to make sure they're going to make time for their employees. So step four is uh, conduct an independent carrier and broker expense review. And really just like you would do in your home uh, or as an individual, I want you to basically account for, uh, every single penny that your company spends on healthcare, find out where it goes and why and for what purpose and see if you can eliminate it or reduce it. Step five is implementing disease-specific value and care management programs. And the most obvious of these, and there's so many of them out there now, uh, but the most obvious of these is for diabetes. Uh, it's such a preventable um, disease. You can prevent it from progressing when you are aware that you're pre-diabetic or or vulnerable to it. There's all kinds of programs. And again, your company just pays a fee and then employees can voluntarily sign up for these programs. Step six, health wealth. Uh, step six is reward long-term employees with a full genome sequence and DNA testing. What that means is you've heard of 23andMe. They were kind of first to market years ago. Well, now we have Helix. We have um, Color. We have several other companies that are uh, essentially offering for a fee uh, your employees can come voluntarily and get their DNA test, and now they know exactly which medications their body metabolizes and which ones they don't. So you can reduce your corporate spending and your personal spending on on uh, pharmaceuticals significantly, and we're also starting to see some progress on nutrigenetics so individuals can find out which foods their body considers fuels versus which foods their body might consider blockers. So uh, it also, DNA testing and full genome sequencing, um, can also show you if you're um, genetically predisposed to get certain types of cancer. If you want to read more about this, if this piques your interest, because it really is fascinating, I want you to Google uh, the word color with a capital C, C-O-L-O-R, uh, which is the name of a company out of the Bay Area. And I want you to Google color and Levi Strauss and DNA testing, those three words. You're going to see an article come up that really talks about how this company color contracts with three or four different companies that offer this as a benefit to their employees and the benefits they've seen and the ROI they've seen as well. Um, step seven is utilizing data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning to the advantage of the company. Uh, there's so much data out there now. Um, however, we can do that and maintain confidentiality for our employees. We need to be doing that. And we give some examples in the book. Uh, we already talked about uh, step eight, which is telehealth and remote monitoring. Uh, when used correctly, those can be a benefit and reduce your spending. And step nine uh, and the last step is celebrate and educate uh, by using integrative medicine and um, uh, functional medicine, as we've talked about, um, which is really just getting back to what we previously called Eastern medicine. So those are the nine steps. It's a lot of fun. Uh, they're not the only nine things you can do, but they're the nine that really jumped off the page at me when I uh, said, hey, uh, I'm going to put this book together. I'm going to look for nine simple steps uh, that companies can think about when they want to reduce healthcare spending. Well, Josh, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, my final question for you is, what are you working on now? This January, January 2019, I'll be releasing a book called Health Wealth for You, which is really the same concept, but it's written for the individual and the family to say, what can I do to save significantly on health care? And I'm really excited about that. A lot of these same concepts will be in that book, um, but there'll also be some new ones. And we're going to have a chapter specifically for female health as well, because there's some really neat things going on. Um, that help uh, women deal specifically with the unique traits of, of the female body 
um, that uh, help them on their personalized medicine plan. One of the things I say in the book is uh, to become an engaged healthcare consumer, uh, you need to um, focus on the three P's, have a plan that's based on preventative and personalized medicine. And so I've seen a lot of emerging concepts for women in recent months that are going to help them with uh, their three P plan. Are there any additional resources out there that you'd want to uh, point people in the direction of? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think right now, health-wealth.com, go there, uh, see what resources are there. Uh, if you uh, are at a company where you have an executive team or a sales team that you think could benefit from having me come speak, I'd love to come speak. That's how I make a living. If you're on a trade organization board, whether it's a chamber of commerce, whether it's a SHRM, a human resources, or even just a trade organization, uh, that's where I do most of my speaking. Uh, where I come in and, and I entertain you with great stories and make you laugh, but I leave you with three to five concepts on how to save money, both for your family and uh, for your uh, business. So um, I would appreciate you checking out drjoshluke.com if you're interested in uh, having me come speak. And if you're interested in learning more about healthcare affordability or the book or the podcast, check out health-wealth.com. If you're on LinkedIn, please go on LinkedIn right now while you're thinking about it, either on your phone or on your laptop, computer, or your desktop, and type in Dr. Josh Luke and uh, follow me. They don't allow me to connect anymore. They cap you off at 30,000, but if you follow me, that also puts you in my feed. Uh, and uh, I do videos routinely and stories on LinkedIn, and I'll share your stories on LinkedIn if you post something and reach out to me as well. So thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for being on today, Josh. I'd love to have you back on about some of your other books as well. Uh been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. 